Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. I am very excited to bring you the conversation that I had with David Robert Grimes. He is a cancer scientist, a conspiracy theory debunker, and the author of a brilliant book called The Irrational Ape, which I can highly recommend if you want to get your critical thinking up to date, which is key to keeping yourself and those around you safe nowadays with all the misinformation that is being spread online which is especially prevalent during the times of the pandemic, which we are currently going through at the moment. This conversation contains so much, like the psychology of conspiracy theories, like our emotions and how they get in the way of our understanding and how a lack of control can lead us to thinking some pretty outlandish things. Um, We also go into things like Holocaust denial and a, a very interesting concept called information hygiene which comes a little bit later in the conversation and finally maybe the most rogue thing of all is a conversation about gay frogs so i hope you enjoy it but before we get into it just a quick word from the sponsor of the podcast and this podcast is as always sponsored by the brilliant better help who provide an online therapy service to people all around the world and If therapy is something that you have been considering or something that you have even a slight interest in, head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. Go through the question on there, work out like what is best for you and your feelings. Even if you're not feeling bad, it is far better to take charge of your mental health whilst it's in a good state than wait for something potentially catastrophic to happen or even low scale sort of nastiness with your mental health with BetterHelp, you will get 10% off your first month following the link through this podcast that is in the description and you can be put in touch with a therapist within 48 hours and they are matched to your needs so it is a therapist who will be qualified to deal with whatever it is you need to deal with whether that's depression anxiety or just trying to make sure that you're aligned with your goals BetterHelp will have a therapist that will be matched for your needs but Without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Dr. David Grimes. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you on. And thank you so much for agreeing to come come and have a chat. Um, author of The Irrational Ape. Now, I thought Good Thinking was a different book, but I've, I've come to learn that that's just what they've called it in America. There, it, it's a bit of a strange one because you'd, you'd wonder why they retitled it. And then you have to remember that about 43% of Americans don't believe in evolution. <laughs> so if you told them that they were an ape, that would pretty much cut off almost half your market from the word go. So, I, you know, my publishers make their own decisions. I uh, I can probably see why in that case, though. Yeah, definitely. And and how, how long has The Irrational Ape been out uh, since, since you've written it? Um, it came out at the end of 2019. Mm. And then um, then the pandemic hit and mm. my publisher got back to me and said, you know, a lot of the stuff you said in this book is kind of happening. And I'm like, yeah. And they go, would you write another edition? So there was an updated edition last year. Then there's yeah. the American edition as well. So I feel like I've been it was it, I keep writing it again or I keep adding bits to it. But essentially, yeah. it's been out since 2019. Just it's getting longer each time it comes out again. <laughs> yeah, nice. It, it's such a good book. And it's like. I've said if if people were to struggle with scientific language, like you may need to read a couple pages over again, but it's put very, very well. And the arguments that you put across, I'm super impressed with because I'm like, this is all stuff that I wish I had it in my head to be able to articulate to people when when I see people believing horseshit conspiracies. 
Um, but obviously some people we just can't articulate. So I'm just not right. Read this book instead. <laughs> and that's good for me because I get a sale out of it. So, you know, well, exactly. No, but but I, I think we kind of hit something there, which I think is really kind of important as well. Um, there's, 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 there's this perception that a lot of this stuff is very hard or, you know, science is difficult or, and, and that makes conspiracy theories and, and misinformation, disinformation very appealing. But what I really was trying to get across is this is all just a method of thinking and it's one that anyone can learn. Mm. Um, what I really want people to walk away from the book uh, feeling is that they have an extra sense of power or, or more, they are more empowered because yeah. I don't think these are just, um, I sometimes get asked, is this just a book for people that really want to think like scientists or like, no, this is like, I want everyone to read this because yeah. this is the one thing I've taken from science that I found very useful in my real life. Yeah. And I think anyone can learn these tools. There's nothing special about me or any of the other people that have used these tools. Anyone can. Yeah. And I do think that in an age where disinformation has become far more um, abundant than yeah. actual reliable information, having the skills to differentiate between the signal and the noise is something that we all need more and more. And unfortunately, yeah. the pandemic has just kind of rammed that home. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Like you said, it was it was a bit of a time a timely book, and if if people have this in their hands, when they're like, right, Johnson and Johnson are trying to cook our insides, and Bill Gates wants to control my mind because they're trying to give us a vaccine, um, people seem to be quite confused at the moment. People seem to think that their lives are far more important than they are, and that Bill Gates gives a fuck about them. <laughs> I mean, the Bill Gates one always got to me because I mean, I, I thought about this that if Bill Gates really wanted to track what you were doing. 95% of the world's computers run Windows, okay? So I think he already could. He wouldn't need to invent a microchip that goes in vaccines. But it's not even a sense of importance. I think a lot of conspiracy theories and um, that and that kind of strange beliefs that we've seen like on display so much during the, during the pandemic, a lot of them are a need to understand our world. Yeah. And a need to feel some sense of control over it. And both of these things are understandable and they are human. But the problem with them is that to have a sense of control and to have an understanding, it's not good enough just to take something that isn't true and substitute it in. Mm. Um, in fact, that makes you less empowered. It makes you less safe. It makes you more likely to cause harm to yourself or someone else. Really, the urge and what the stories people are telling, the narrative structure, the reason they exist makes perfect sense. Humans are storytellers. We love stories and they help us understand the world and our place in it. But unfortunately, if you pick the wrong story and, and you, you start believing some very toxic or noxious fiction, that is going to have bad ramifications. So the, I understand why people do it. But again, you still have to be very selective about what you choose to believe at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just um, we'll just go go back as it is to how it is that you came to do what you do and write the book. So, so what was your sort of journey into science? Like, was that something you were keen on from school or just kind of like, you're like, I'm good at this. I'm going to do it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure I'm good at any of it, but <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I've always just been very curious. I've, I've always just wanted to understand things. I'll, I'll put it out there. I've been nosy. I mean, I ask a lot of questions of everything, and that's not always a good thing. Um, you can ask my very irritated parents who had to rear me how, how fun <laughs> that was. But one of the things when I started doing this, um, when I started communicating science to the public, I had a very naive idea that it was all about information deficit, that it was all about, you know, if Pete, you just explain this really well, people will be happy. 
And very quickly, when I was writing on subjects like vaccination or climate change or, or nuclear power, whatever it was, you'd start getting hate mail. You'd start getting a lot of um, pushback that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. And I realized from and, and a lot of conspiracy theory, and this is years ago, I started doing this um, about 10 years ago now. And what I suddenly realized is there was a huge psychological component to why people believe things. It's not enough. Yeah. Just, it's not just a case of facts or fiction. You can't disabuse someone. Of, uh, I think Jonathan Swift said that um, you can't reason a man out of a position by reason which he didn't obtain. So if someone has yeah. an emotional reason for believing something, you can't just decide that you're going to give them all these facts that'll fix it. And I got more and more interested in why that was the case, because we all do it. We all have mm -hmm. these blind spots, ideological or, or whatever else. And I, I found some of my own and went, whew, that's weird. I, I believe something totally wrong there. And I, had, uh, and I need to fix that. And as I went more into that and started reading the psychology of why people believe that and why we make mistakes, I suddenly realized that these mistakes that I kept seeing, um, they were everywhere and we were always making them. And it didn't matter if you were, you know, an Einstein or, or an absolute dunce, you were making the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't about your intelligence. It wasn't about your education. It was about these pitfalls, these trap doors that we could fall through. And the, the, the genesis for the, or the impetus for writing the book was going actually if we could all just spot these trapdoors our life would be much easier we wouldn't get taken mm -hmm. advantage of and it's about it, it's really important for me to, to to stress that because if you fail at critical thinking or if you have these blind spots it's not just that you might be wrong occasionally because everyone's wrong all the time we're just trying to be less wrong yeah it's that you can be taken advantage of by charlatans by um by, by fools by by demagogues and we see it politically. We saw, you say, the we've all watched the rise of Trump and, and thank God he's gone now. But, yeah. you know, the, the demagoguery he employed, he bamboozled people. He, he created this army of, of absolute devotees. Um, and by literally, they had to switch off a lot of their critical faculties to accept that. Yeah. We've also seen during the pandemic that people embracing um, conspiracy theories. Now, I would often make a distinction because I do some research on conspiracy theories, can theorists too. I make a distinction between people that um, propagate conspiracy theories, you know, the people yeah. that spread them around, and the people that fall victim to them. Yeah. And I think the vast majority of people that believe them and might share them on Instagram or whatever else, they're victims. Um, it doesn't make what they do okay, but it means that you use a different tool for dealing with them than you would with the people that they're coming up with this stuff in the first place. Yeah. And again, that's all because if your critical faculties haven't been sharpened, if you haven't really thought about the information you're being exposed to you can become infected by it just like in the pandemic in, information is infectious disinformation particularly yeah. and we have to get really good at you know immunizing ourselves against the bad effects of it and that was really what inspired me to start writing this rambling tome yeah and what was it you, you mentioned there was a few things that you'd believed that you maybe thought you shouldn't have. What what was were there any conspiracy prior yes. to things that you'd attached yourself to? Absolutely. And I think this is a really um there's a nice lesson here. I think I wrote about it in the book a little bit, but I, I'm gonna give I gave myself more credit than I deserved. I'm gonna be honest about this. When I started college, when I was um a, a young 18-year-old, it was around the height of the Iraq war. And of course, everyone was very um a lot of people in the world were annoyed about it, including myself. Yeah. And I'd grown up in the Middle East. Now, I wasn't, um, I had a little bit of knowledge of, of Middle Eastern politics, but enough that I wasn't buying the official story, right? Yeah. And the official story was kind of bunkum. But 
that very quickly, when I met people in college who had bigger conspiracy theories, they believed that 9-11 was an inside job, that kind of stuff. And I became really sympathetic to that. And I think because, and this is a real human thing, because of a sea of anger that we felt that the US government and, and, and the UK government to some, some extent, it became much easier to go, oh yeah, it's probably, you know, it's probably a fix. Yeah. So again, humans, uh, we emote before we reflect and we, uh, we, we react before we reflect and, and emote before we kind of make decisions. I did that. And the thing that disabused me of that notion, because I kind of started accepting that as like, well, obviously it's a, it's a fix. And that's yeah. quite conspiratorial. <clears throat> the one thing I had was, uh, was a father who was a structural engineer. And I went back and I remember at dinner saying to him, yeah, it, it, it seems dodgy, isn't it? And he stopped me and he said, hmm? okay, justify that. And I was like, what do, what do you mean? Like, you know, and I, again, 18 year old full of bluster and spit. And I'm going, <laughs> I'm going on about this. And he explained to me very carefully that I was like, what about the, the way the towers exploded? I was regurgitating stuff that had been, you know, I'd heard in college. And he went, he explained the ideas of pancaking. I said, well, what about the steel melting and all that stuff? And he said, he goes, steel doesn't have to melt to collapse. I goes, at the temperatures that was at, it would be a 10% of a tensile strength. He goes, it'd be like trying to stack a house up on spaghetti, hard spaghetti versus spaghetti you've just heated up. Mm. It won't stack. And then he, carefully as a structural engineer walked me through every layer of progressive collapse and explained that's exactly what you'd expect to see from a plane hitting a building wow. and in the end he didn't call me an idiot he didn't say I was wrong he just took it apart very gently and then I suddenly realized I was an idiot yeah. and I went, oh. but I realized how easy it was to fall for that I was angry I wanted to understand this was a really appealing simple narrative and they it is simple conspiracy theories have a good guy and a bad guy um, there's always someone behind it. They actually are darkly and paradoxically reassuring because even yeah. though they're taking, they, they give a narrative, a sense of structure to the world, the world is often chaos. Like mm. things aren't planned. And you see it in COVID too. People think this is planned. And part of that is, you know, to them, is, it sounds horrifying, but partially that's reassuring because if it was planned, there's some order to it. The fact mm. that we are so vulnerable to a pathogen that emerged in the wild is terrifying. It's actually less terrifying to some of us if we just think, you know, someone made it, Bill Gates yeah. or George Soros or someone. Yeah. And so I've certainly I've had my share of as a younger person falling prey to conspiracy theories. And now when I find myself giving lectures on them, I'm like, and people go, oh, yeah, it's easy for you to say. No, I've totally fallen for them. And it's human, too. Yeah. It's getting out of that rabbit hole. We all have to learn how to do. Yeah, definitely. I think it's easier for people to accept like some fancy story than it is to accept the vulnerability that comes with like being human because like we are actually a bit shit in terms of evolution apart from our brains like we're pretty weak compared yeah. to a lot of other animals who can just eat out of bins like we'd be dead um I, I was reading a book the other day called the psychology of money and he was speaking about how people just have no concept that anything could be any worse than what's already happened and someone quite famous said after the first world war it's like i'm so glad this is over because we're never going to have a war again it's like right 30 30 years later hitler's just there's 75 million people dead loads of people have been killed in concentration camps and concentration camps is something that is is a conspiracy theory for some there's there's um holocaust deniers isn't there out there there are. And, and actually, you can, you, can, you can kind of unpick people's motivations. Um, Holocaust denial is, is a fascinating one because, unfortunately, the Jews have been targeted with, uh, and it, it usually is an anti-Semitic thing. Mm. The Jews have been targeted as an outgroup 
since I mean, the first when I was doing some, re- I didn't actually put it in the book. It'll be in the, in the second one if I ever get around to writing it. But there's been um, purges against the Jews since the first century AD, at least on record in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And in the 14th century, it's what I find fascinating about that. And it ties into conspiracy stuff. If you remember the QAnon guys we're talking, you know, they, they came up and these were a bunch of Trump supporters who believed that a secret elite of pedophiles were, were controlling the world and drinking the blood of children. And they had yeah. a fancy word. That sounds, you know, new age, really out there. Those same claims were being made about Jews in the 14th century, that they were secretly controlling the world and drinking the blood of children. The so it's just a conspiracy right? theories. <laughs> but with, with Holocaust denial, there's a lot of minimization going on. Um, and that's often to sustain a hatred. For example, if you had an anti-Semitic streak and you, you have two, and this is a really interesting thing in human psychology called motivated reasoning, right? So let's say you are an anti-Semite or you have a dislike of the Jews. Yeah. And someone points out that there was a targeted and systematic attempt to wipe them off the face of the earth by this regime. You have two options. You can either go, whoo, that's pretty bad. You know, even if I, you know, or you can minimize it and say, well, it's probably faked. It's not true. Yeah. And this happens a lot with, with beliefs. When you challenge people, you often find them denying the evidence. And, and this is a selective thing. It's, it's kind of cherry picking the evidence. We call it motivated reasoning in psychology. So I think a lot of Holocaust denial is, is rooted, like a, the, the loudest Holocaust denialists are often anti-Semites. Now, to a horrible thought experiment, even if you, a raging anti-Semite shouldn't actually care in some respect whether the Holocaust was real or not. If they really want to hate Jews, that shouldn't affect them. But yeah. it does, because again, um, they want the, per, the Jews to always be bad. So therefore, yeah. they have to deny the Holocaust. So a lot of our reasoning, now that's an extreme example, because please, let's, ne- let's never entertain anti-Semites, but mm. um, in the extreme example, we often try to cherry pick reality to suit our worldview rather mm. than update our worldview in the face of reality. And then, and that's, you've seen that with COVID as well. You've seen a lot of the conspiracy theories. You've probably dealt with it yourself where someone puts something absolutely mad out there and you try to gently disabuse them of the notion and they double down on it and they just keep denying whatever facts you give them to suspect yeah. sustain this fiction. And that is a huge thing in humans. Our beliefs are ideological. Our beliefs are very much, we, we, we identify with them emotively. They are us. They define our worldview. So therefore, when someone tries to correct them, it makes them very, very hard. And when we try to correct our own, it can make it very hard as well. Yeah. Yeah. There was a part in the book um, when you spoke about Sandy Hook. Um, oh, and the Sandy Hook shootings and the, and the people who are denying that. And weirdly enough, and I, and I know this name may may uh, irritate you a little bit, but the first time I ever heard about that was at Alex Jones on on Joe Rogan. He was talking about Sandy Hook. So I think he yeah. got, in, got in quite a bit of trouble for supporting the denial of, of the Sandy Hook school shootings, which, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it was... 2000 like between 20 but 2012 um some guy shot his mum with a bolt action rifle stole her rifle goes into a school shoots a load of like six seven year olds and a couple of teachers and then there are people on the internet like nah they're just trying to control guns this is all made up and sending like hate mail to the parents whose children have literally just been shot yeah and that's exactly that you, you've kind of got it in a nutshell it was Adam Lanza and very disturbed young man did exactly took his bolt bolt master rifle, killed his mother. And then in the end, had killed, I think, between 23 and 26 people. The exact number it is in the book. I can't remember off the top of my head, yeah, um, <laughs> but mainly children and mainly six and seven year olds. So it was one of the worst mass school shootings in America 
it's it's really shocking they have so many that you have to kind of yeah yeah but, but um <laughs> you have to rate and, them <laughs> but there was a there it, it, it was that was during the obama administration and there was already a very reactionary anti-obama movement as 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 we well know look at the history of it now um but this was suddenly painted as some of the more extreme elements as a staged event to allow um tighter regulation on guns and so that's a good example of motivated reasoning they were given you know they they, they the facts were a school shooting took place it was awful but instead of accepting that and maybe going well that might make us have to reevaluate our stance on who should be allowed to carry automatic and uh, assault rifles if you really wanted to believe that guns were fine and everything else was the problem it was easier for some of these people to engineer a conspiracy theory where the whole thing was faked and that made them and it made them perversely hate the families that had just been bereaved i mean it wasn't just giving them abuse they went they smashed up gravestones which they claimed were fake um death threats videos even to this day if you look up some of the sandy hook families you'll find this rabid disgusting uh, rants about them and alex jones was absolutely uh, as a conspiracy theorist of the highest order with his info wars or info wars show even he um he perpetuated this to a huge degree and interestingly enough he got sued and he tried to use the free speech defense that can be used in the in the USA. And a yeah. judge basically said, no, if you're inciting hatred, if you're inciting human misery to this extent, you cannot use the First Amendment to guarantee your right to free speech. Yeah. So Alex Jones is now on the on the hook for quite a few quid on that. Yeah. Not that the families deserve any of it. I mean, if you just lost your child uh, to to a gunman and suddenly people are smashing up your child's grave and calling you a pedophile a liar a crisis actor and threatening you the mind boggles if you think of the yeah. inhumanity that requires but the conspiracy theorists believe that because it was easier than them looking at their worldview and going maybe not everyone should have assault rifles yeah and it's like how many school shootings have been in england i'm i'm pretty sure there's none the last I remember was 95 and it was Dunblane. And that was a huge event that changed the law on, on, on who was allowed guns. Yeah. Um, I mean, which is exactly what should happen when you have an yeah. event like that. You should go, wow, we need to change things. And, and that was 95, I think. And yeah, I don't think there's been one that I can think of since. Yeah. And nor should there be. I mean, school shootings no. shouldn't be a thing. <laughs> you know? No, definitely not. I think it's like, a, it, especially for in america like i think they just give the guns a chance every time this comes up like there's there's so many mass shootings in america now like they're, they're almost considered normal and I, I remember watching a south park not too long ago and they were just going about their school business with just like guns going on in the background like they were playing on on like they were playing it as a joke which of course like it, it's not but like they have very they have a very clear like left-wing political stance on mm. south park and they use the humor to their advantage and, and and you almost you almost have to, but I think I mean, the the abundance of guns in America is a shocking thing, and it's it's an interesting ideological fixation they have with it. But there's a thing in psychology, and I write about it briefly in the book, called identity protective cognition, and this is the idea that we are our beliefs, right? So if I am a Second Amendment enthusiast, the right to bear arms is something that identifies me. It's not just an idea; it's an identity. So any, I think about ideas in theory shouldn't bother us if someone contradicts them or they're updated. They're just things, they're accessories, right? Yeah. But if you suddenly start identifying with an idea, 
Um, like if someone tells you your favorite sports team are kind of crap, you might get offended. But yeah. in theory, you shouldn't. Like logically, that makes no sense. It's yeah. not. But because we identify strongly and something has now become us, that's a big problem. So this it, this is really fascinating that we do this. We uh, we start emoting with ideas and we start defining ourselves by those ideas. And that is reflective of the fact that we're we were a thinking ape, you know, but yeah. it's a bit of a mistake because it makes it really hard to change your bad ideas. Yeah. Uh, so, and if someone corrects you or if someone gives you information that challenges your idea, like uh, say that, that the Sandy Hook example, where these, these gun fanatics were told, Hey, maybe not everyone should have assault rifles. Mm. Um, it gets easier to accept more outlandish stuff to preserve your belief rather than accept more obvious facts that would require you to update your belief or to yeah. refine it. And unfortunately that is a real thing. Uh, we are an emotive species. We are definitely very, um, very passionate, we're, we're, uh, but we're very reactive. And that's not yeah. always a good thing. It makes changing your mind hard, which is why, I mean, we need to, we really need to work at it. It's not something that is natural to us for, yeah. for obvious reasons, I guess. How, how do you find it? Obviously, like we, I'm, I'm sure you're under scrutiny all the time by, <laughs> by, by the conspiracy theories. How are you attached to the ideas or well to fact yourself to the point where it, like it brings up emotions in you, or is it something that you've had to learn to like just put to one side? Don't give them a receipt. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm. This is a spoiler alert. I'm definitely human. I've checked, um, <laughs> and which means I, I mean, I'm not immune to it. I'm not inured from it. The first, I have to. The first time I started getting abuse from conspiracy theorists, maybe about a decade ago, and it's there's been times that I don't dwell on this because I don't want sympathy for it per se. But there's been times it's been pretty horrific. I've had to get the police involved a few times. I've had people find my home address. Um, I've had people mm. send some pretty graphic things to me. And then you deal with the low-level abuse, which is, I mean, Twitter is just a cesspit, so that's yeah. often abuse all the time. Um, you have people emailing you. You have people writing hate blogs or or editing your pages or, or you know, it's it's a weird one. You have to, at some level, realize that the reason they're doing that is because they view you as a totem of of people challenging their belief. And they're yeah. emotively connected to these beliefs. So you have to be the bad person. Yeah. It doesn't make it fun to endure. No. But you can then view it a little bit more like a toddler having a tantrum. Then, I mean, I think my problem initially was like, I'm like, what? Why do they hate me so much? All I suggested was this. And I, I got, I really, it really affected me very badly. Yeah. Um, I'm very prone to anxiety anyway. In the first few years of me doing this, it, it riddled me with, it racked yeah. me with kind of, and now, I don't want to tempt fate. Now I'm slightly, um, I'm better equipped because I can, I can detach when someone is doing this to me, I can stop and go, firstly, this person, I choose my battles. This person is not a good use of my time. Yeah. Um, and I should ignore them. And the second part I kind of go is the reason they're doing this is because you've, you've, you've rattled their belief structure. Mm. And that's a good thing. Cause that might be the first little hint they need to start examining their own beliefs because the really important thing here is no one ever changes anyone else's mind never mm -hmm. what you can do the best you can do is give someone the tools to change their own mind and a better argument than what they already believe and if if you've rattled someone enough by existing that they are trying to diminish you 
That means you kind of got to them with something you said. So that's not, I try to see as a good thing. It doesn't feel like a good thing when it happens, but I try to see the positive in it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I suppose it's like, it, it must have been an unnatural, well, it is an unnatural amount of of hatred or like abuse to get. And especially if, if you are prone to anxiety, like even starting a podcast, like I'm, I'm very fortunate, I very rarely piss anyone off and there'll be another, a rare scenario where someone like, will send a message and I'm my, my brain will go wild of to like, why, why am I being attacked for this? And it must've been just a, like really difficult to deal with. So when, like when that anxiety came up for you, you say you're prone to it. Do you want me asking like how it was you dealt with that? Um, yeah, this, I mean, it, it's evolved in a way cause I wasn't prepared for it when it started. Mm. And the first few years I dealt with it in a very unhealthy way. I am, um, I, I absolutely dwelt on it. I uh, probably drank too much of it. I am Irish. I mean, let's be fair. That's the default <laughs> state of being. Um, I, 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 but I, I would almost like I get into these little internet dramas where I just talk about it, and, you know. And I try to read. And I, the mistake I was making is I was treating these people saying this horrible stuff as like um, as being rational, as like you know, and 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 thinking I can if I just try really hard, I can convince them that this is, you know, you know that they're wrong or that this is unfair or, or you know maybe I can reason with them. That was a mistake. Yeah, because actually, if someone has gone down to the level of denigrating you, you disengage. You're like, no, you don't. You're not worth my time. Yeah. Uh, so the first few years, I dealt with it really badly. Um, over the years, I got slightly better because you, you suddenly from I, I have like a spider sense now. I can get what seems like an innocent comment on something nowadays and immediately know that I should mute that person. And the reason why is I've seen the pattern often enough and I'm really good. I can spot it. Like it's the same way as, as, as a teenager, I used to get the head kicked off me when I moved back to Ireland. And to this day, I have a really good sense. I can be out like on a night out and I can see, look at a bunch of lads and go, there's going to be trouble there. And I can see it way before anyone else does. These are things you only learn to do with experience where you're like yeah and it's the same now when i see and it, it often phrases itself in the term of someone asking a question but a very loaded question that you know is is uh, we call it jacking off jaqing off because if someone is asking a question but the question is already presupposing an answer like well why did you know if that's true then why does bill gates do this huh and you're like hmm you see you don't you've already assumed that you know so you kind of yeah. see these little tells and you're like do i really want to give hours of my day and i used to give i don't know how i got any work done when i was at the height of this because i was constantly dealing with people that were incredibly and had no interest in good faith engagement i have since realized i, I deal with vaccine hesitant parents an awful lot now yeah and like i said there's a big there's a big i mean vaccination is a topic it's very very close to me but there's a spectrum of vaccine acceptance. It's not just like I accept, I don't accept. There's a whole lot of people in the middle who are not quite sure which way they lean. Yeah. I find that it is way better use of my time to sit with people in the middle of that spectrum who have questions, who have fears, mm. uh, but aren't, you know, it's a waste of my time if I go to the extreme ends and try to convince the Naomi Wolves of this world to change their mind. They're not gonna. And I'll yeah. just get more and more frustrated. If, however, I sit with a parent who's like, I'm really scared from what I've heard. I don't know. If I spend a half hour having a chat with them, no one's shouting at each other. We're just, yeah. I'm like, tell me what you're scared of and we'll talk about it. Um, that's a conversation. And I suddenly realized that good faith conversation, that's what changes things. 
Yeah. But if you go to the extreme end and you will find them online, they're the ones that will comment. There's the ones that will send stuff. They're the ones that will write blogs. Um, they're the extreme end. You're wasting yeah. your time trying to convince them. But they're not the majority. The vast majority of people aren't screaming and shouting into the void. You might go on social media and think everyone's shouting, but social media is a self-selected subset of the population who are already extreme by definition. Um, so picking your battles is really important and knowing yeah. when not to fight, knowing okay. what you don't have to. And that was really, for me, really positive, knowing that I didn't have to fight all the time, that I could just say, I'm going to walk away from this yeah, because it's not worth either of our time. And once I realized that, that did make it slightly easier to deal with. The block button is your friend and never be afraid of using it if you need to. Yeah, okay, definitely. Although it's interesting you said you prefer to sort of speak to people that are in the middle there. And I, I, I thought this might be quite a good idea. It's just to, let's just pretend that I'm hesitant about the COVID-19 vaccine. And, Which would be understandable, uh, by the way. I mean, with, with the amount of disinformation out there, mm. It would be, unless you were very, very informed, it would be crazy if you weren't apprehensive. Yeah. So, so if I, if I was to call you up, so make some, look, David, like I am worried about this vaccine. It's only taken him a year to make it like less than that. Like how? Cause uh, the vaccines that they made in like the 1800s took him 10 years to make. Why, why is it taking him so quick now? Yeah, and that's a really good question. And I would, I, so if, if, if you said to me, I would say, if that's an, that's an excellent point. I go, so we need to look at why did it used to take vaccines so long to be built? And the first thing I'd explain is the weird thing, people always think that, you know, pharma companies love vaccines. They really don't. They constitute mm. less than 1% of pharma profits. They only get used once or twice. So yeah. there's no real uh, incentive for a company that wants to make money to make them. So firstly, even getting them to do the vaccine research is hard, right? Okay. But the next part you'd say is there's so many bottlenecks in the way of developing a vaccine. Firstly, the companies aren't really interested. This is why governments often have to step in and ask them to do it. Hmm. Um, they don't really want to. The, the, the research is usually marginalized. It's quite on the corner. And there's all these developmental bottlenecks that they go through. With COVID-19, we're in a unique situation that every government in the world has basically green-lighted a huge amount of research. Every yeah. pharma company has suddenly made this minority item they barely cared about, which is a headache for them. They've been um, given the impetus by governments and the World Health Organization to go and do it. We've seen all the things that usually slow down vaccine development being booted. So that's why it was so quickly developed. The next question I'd follow up is people's fears is, is it safe? Because that's really what people are concerned about. Yeah. Then I, I tell you, here's how we, we assess safety, right? We kind of know what these things tend to do, right? We know, for example, the example if, if you have if you have an ice pop and you slightly change the flavor, you still know what the effects of the ice pop generally are because you know yeah. the ingredients of it and you know what to look out for. So when we do these clinical trials, we do two things. We look for safety signals that emerge and you give it to tens of thousands of people and watch them. Firstly, you just observe. And then you keep expanding those. So you go through phase one, phase two, phase three. When you get to phase three, you're doing it in humans. And then we do phase four where people don't realize, and we're doing it right now. We're seeing it with the AstraZeneca stuff. Mm. Phase four is even after you've approved a product and you've went, <clears> okay. <throat> and when you approve a product, right? You're not just saying it's always safe. It's perfect. No, because that's unrealistic. You don't know mm. what could happen 10 years down time. What you're doing is a very complicated form of risk balance where you're going, is this safer than getting the disease, right? Yeah. And I suppose the analogy I'd use is it's like a seatbelt. 
there is a chance that if you were in a car crash, your seatbelt could decapitate you. There's a far greater <laughs> chance it's going to save your life. And when vaccines are given, when you do this research, you have to factor that in. It's called the, the risk benefit analysis. You have to go, if even if a bad side effect develop, is it rare enough that um, we still know that it would be overall safe? And you're seeing that interesting, this phase four stuff with the AstraZeneca stuff. We're seeing that these blood clots that might be connected to it, that might not be, there's still a bit of, um, we're seeing they're incredibly rare. And we're still mm. seeing, even if they were causative, which they could well be, um, everything has a potential for some kind of ill effect. We're still seeing that these, the vaccine will save a lot more lives than it would potentially risk. Yeah. Um, and it's always about getting that balance right. But that's why even now, like the, that, that safety signal came from scientists. It didn't, uh, you know, we were still observing, you know, it's like, it's not just yeah. like you give it and you forget. Um, but it is true that everything biological can have a, have some level of side effect. And I totally understand people's apprehension. What I would, what I would talk to a vaccine hesitant person about mm. is saying, we know that COVID can cause strokes. We know that COVID causes deep or thrombosis. We know it causes pulmonary embolisms, which all can kill people. We know it does it quite mm. a lot. So we know that your odds of getting this stuff is a lot lower with the vaccine than it would be with COVID. And, um, you know, yeah. and the nice thing of these side effects, they're observable. So we now know, for example, if this is a side effect of the vaccine, we know what the signals of it are and we can treat that person very quickly. Yeah. Because there are always like you, you've probably got vaccines before and you know, your arm getting all swollen and sore and things like that. Yeah. People can have anaphylactic reactions. They can have allergic reactions, but these tend to happen very soon very close to when you get the vaccination yeah so most of these effects you can observe people for a few weeks and know it. we don't expect any huge long-term effects because we've done this before we've had like we have literally decades and decades of safety data on very similar vaccines yeah. or vaccines so you know and again something in theory could emerge it's just really really unlikely so if you have two choices the seat belt or not um, yeah, you could worry all about the decapitation, but I'd much, I'd much rather think this is going to save my life on average. I'm going to take this role. Yeah. Yeah, That's definitely. probably the conversation I'd have and, and see where it, it went. Yeah, sure. yeah, definitely. And um, as it, so I think in terms of like the vaccine, I, you are pro, pro vaccine and that's that's that much is obvious i don't know if, if that means you must be doing a good job if, if i can work that out well, um, that you're pro well, well, it, well, well it depends i mean I'm, this <laughs> vaccine seems to save lives and that's good but like if a new vaccine came along that wasn't as good you have to go on evidence mm. it wouldn't be if i just took a position saying i'm pro vaccination if a new vaccine came out that side effects outweighed the positives then you'd have to say well that's that, that's not a great idea yeah um so every case has to be done on a case-by-case -case basis it's just that every vaccine that has ever been approved so far has been done on that evidence basis and therefore i am in favor of it yeah but in theory you could invent a really bad one i mean i have no idea if the russian vaccine is any good or, or even <laughs> some of the you know i wouldn't have an opinion on that one because yeah. i don't know enough about it yeah of course of course and um when it comes to like vaccination the anti-vax community there's a brilliant part it's right at the start of your book about um I, I know that this is another name that may 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 not excite you um of, of andrew wakefield who essentially unethically tested on a very very small sample of children and, and made a flippant comment about links of the mmr vaccine to autism yeah do you think that holds of like a, a really strong deep root into anti-vaccine 
sort of propaganda nowadays? To an extent, yes. So if I'm totally honest, we've since the time of Jenner and the first vaccinations in the 1700s, there's been an anti-vaccine movement. Mm-hmm. They have always been, they're ideological. They, they just believe that vaccination is unnatural, therefore unhealthy, um, yeah. which is a bit of a funny one. When people say, oh, it's unnatural, it's bad. Yeah, well, like arsenic is natural. Uranium is natural. Don't put it on your <laughs> breakfast cereal. You know, it, it, it's a bit of an arbitrary distinction, but this is what they've believed. Um, they've always been a minority. And particularly in the 20th century, when vaccines started really saving lives, like infant mort- after clean water, nothing has saved more lives than immunization. Because, mm. you know, our ch- if you look at how many children died in the 1800s versus the 1900s, it's a big difference. You know? yeah. So when Wakefield came out, what Wakefield did was um, he put his, his paper, in, in two, it was 1998, where he did a very small study and he suddenly in the discussion speculated that maybe autism was connected with uh, the MMR vaccine. He then called a press conference to make that claim. Now he had no evidence for this claim, even the paper, which he cited, you know, he knew most people wouldn't read it. He knew mm-hmm. they just see as a science paper that says this, it's not quite what it said. And over the next two years, that claim was amplified up. What Wakefield did was he became a poster child for the anti-vaccine movement. And this is, if you think of it, this is pre-social media. So this is all done word of mouth. It was done in national newspapers. And it became such a big topic of conversation in the UK that vaccination rates dropped by up to 20% in some regions. Now, measles is really infectious, right? Every single case has an or not of about 18, which means it gives rise to about 18 separate cases. So this is why you, and to keep, because it's so infectious, you want to immunize around 95% of your population just to stop it becoming endemic. It was falling to 60% in some places, 75 in London, uh, sorry, 75 on average in the country, down from 95. And even though that sounds like it's still quite high, it's not high enough to stop it becoming endemic. Yeah. So there was measles outbreaks everywhere. Now, Wakefield was very quickly exposed, not, not quick enough, but it took a few years. He was exposed not only as a fraud, but he had taken money to make these claims he was corrupt. He was unethical. Um, he had put a patent on single shot vaccines that he wanted to. Uh, he, it was, he, was, he was a classic example of a charlatan. This wasn't mm-hmm. a mistake or he wasn't ideologically, you know, anti-vax per se. He was financially um, happy yeah. to do this <clears throat> and to use his reputation as a doctor to make people, you know, perversely reassured. Oh, if a doctor says this. So he abused the trust that society placed in him. And he was it, it kicked off. Um, the, the medical council uh, suspended his license and, and, and really disgraced him because he deserved to be. The damage he has done, though, still perpetuates because even though he's been debunked, it's become part of the anti-vaccine canon. And it's a very strong one because autism is something that people have in their availability heuristic, right? We mm. no longer think, and it's kind of a privileged position. If we went back to our grandparents' generation, they would have seen people twisted by polio. They would have known mm-hmm. children that died of measles. They would yeah. have known people that had scarlet fever or pertussis. They would have known these things. They would yeah. have had them in their cultural lexicon, you know, just to, an image they could pull of, you know, we don't have that. We don't see people whose bodies are broken by polio. We don't yeah. see people with smallpox with their scars weeping and villages shut down because vaccine. So we got part of its complacency. But what we do see and what we do fear is autism. Now, whether yeah. we should or not is an entirely separate discussion, but people did and people still do. So if someone says, oh, this might make, you know, this might have a link to autism, even if it's not true, 
it's autism we're scared of yeah when we have our kids we're no longer thinking wow my kid could die from brain um from brain complications of me- of of uh, measles which is true because we don't have a mental reference point for that we all know someone who's autistic or someone who's you know had difficulty raising an autistic child and that's what we're scared of so that's yeah. called availability heuristic and i think wakefield tapped into that and that's yeah. still scary now but that's also perversely part of the success of vaccination is it's made these horrible scenes that our grandparents would have witnessed they're gone yeah um, but they could easily come back and that's why we can't really afford to be complacent either you know yeah definitely because I, I suppose then it would just be well hopefully a lot of people would be eating their hats and going to get themselves jabbed up but um you would hope so but i'm not i'm not for example in europe in 2016 there were 4000 cases of measles in 2018 there was 87500 oh, you mentioned this in the book was mm. it there was a lot in sweden wasn't there lots in sweden a few outbreaks one in the ukraine um america was measles free in the year 2000 it was officially declared measles free due to the rise of anti-vaccine stuff since the dawn of social media and this has been a huge factor um, measles has become endemic in the UK, in the US again. They've had some of the biggest outbreaks they've ever had. <clears throat> and we know that anti-vaccine propaganda and conspiracy theory shared on social media is the number one reason why parents become hesitant to vaccinate. It mightn't make them an anti-vaxxer, but it yeah. will make them so afraid that they go, ooh, maybe I, I won't vaccinate my kid because they think that they're taking more of a risk vaccinating than the truth, mm-hmm. which is this there's almost no risk to vaccinating and there's a huge risk to not vaccinating. And this is where conspiracy theorists and disinformation does extreme damage Yeah, because it doesn't have to make you an anti-vaxxer. Like you don't have to be dyed in the wool going around joining rallies. All it has to do is make you afraid. If it makes you Mm -hmm. afraid enough to decide that you're not going to do it, the human default state is if we're afraid of something, we definitely don't do it. Even if it's better for us, you know, and that is where these people are, particularly online, they have dominated social media well before COVID, by the way. In the year 2019, the WHO had to declare vaccine hesitancy a top 10 threat to public health. And mm. that's that's why those numbers in Europe are so shocking. We really could see the dark renaissance of these once extinct or nigh undistinct diseases if we're not careful. So we cannot mm. let this information win. It imperils our health as much as our mental well-being, our physical health as well. Yeah, definitely. And and you say like some, someone like Wakefield, uh, Wakefield abused his position as a doctor. And, and in the book, you speak about people going on Oprah and Oprah sort of facilitating all these, uh, yeah. all these people with their with their crazy sort of holistic medicines and, and how it's sort of oh, one in a few thousand will work. And then they're used as like, this will work, this will get you thin. How how does the science community sort of, I, I know how they probably view those particular people but how how is it combated when people like that are given such a platform like you see people going on like good morning britain all the time who have just got some crazy new diet and and the media just keep giving these people platforms to to spread the these messages how how can the science community and i suppose the the normal community combat that sort of disinformation going out just because they've got phd after the name or doctor before it yeah yeah and it it, it, it's I mean, for me, I find it, I, I've seen it during, during the lockdowns, there's been a number of people with scientific and medical qualifications going out there and saying outrageous things. And so the first mm. thing we have to learn is that the mere fact that someone has a medical degree or a PhD in science 
does not mean everything they say is legitimate. Um, I think that I always say this, um, that I've, I have a piece coming out in Scientific American, I think next week, and I, I do talk about this a lot because it annoys me so much because I get it sent me, well, this doctor says, or this scientist says, I'm like, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, a scientist is only speaking with any authority. The only, the only authority a scientist ever has is when they are reflecting the evidence base. It's a yeah. borrowed authority. If I am correctly talking about the evidence, that's fine. If I start making stuff up, if I go off piste, if I embrace a fringe position, even when the evidence doesn't allow me to, the fact that I'm a dog, that I'm a, med, that I'm a scientific um, expert on paper doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer ethically doing, doing my work. And we see this with, with people like Wakefield or a classic example. There's, there's plenty of them during the, the pandemic. We've seen the rise of a lot of them. And it's because they get the views, they get the hits, and they use and abuse their position. So how do we call it? I think the scientific establishment need to do more about it. This is a yeah. personal thing. And I think the reason why scientists are, well, they're hugely busy. They don't usually have much media savvy. Um, they don't know really how to combat this en masse. Mm. Um, that's one of the problems. The medical establishment are slightly better at it because medic, in theory, what a doctor says should be regulated by the medical council but around the world that differs and also they're reluctant to get involved they i mean i've I've dealt with the case in ireland of of of, i won't name names but medical councils can be very reluctant to get to to make a ruling because they're like oh well we'll just ignore it and go away um so there's partly that but the other thing is i think the general public need to realize that the mere fact someone has a qualification after the name or before their name is not a guarantor that they are going to be giving good information. What really matters is the evidence. And the evidence is far more democratic than just a mere, um, you know, cartel of, of, of experts. The thing is, yeah. the evidence anyone can look at, you can go on to, in, in the UK, you can go on to, say, the NHS website, and the information there is really good, and it'll tell you on that website where they got the information from, what papers, all this kind of yeah. stuff like that. Um, I do think that science and stuff is actually more democratic than people think it is when the information is there, but there are people that abuse that. I also think that the responsibility, the other one you alluded to, it is up now, I've, I've, had, I've had my heart broken with this on occasion, but good media producers the bbc are really good at this uh, usually yeah. because what they will not allow or they're not supposed to allow in their charter is the concept of false balance so if one view has overwhelming scientific support and, and evidence and the other one has has none it is a logical mistake to present them as views equally worthy of debate yeah. right it, it, it's a total mistake because it gives the public the impression it's contentious when maybe it's not and on things like climate change, where the evidence is overwhelming for climate change, it doesn't make any sense to have a talking head, to have like an expert on climate and say Jeremy Clarkson arguing about it, because it yeah. makes no sense because like, well, it's obviously happening. Um, and the same with vaccination. Vaccination is safe and effective. That's what the overwhelming evidence says. It makes no sense to put like Andrew Wakefield on the show. No. Sometimes media organizations fail in that. They fail in their due diligence. And a lot of his stuff is presented as human interest as well. And then, I mean, I've had heartbreaking conversations with producers kind of going, look, please don't let this person on your show because what they're selling will kill people. And they're like, oh, yeah, but like they've got an interesting perspective. And I'm like, yes, but again, and and, I mean, with the BBC, I've never really had that problem because they do have the BBC uh, charter, which the public have a big input in. So they, they will follow that. 
it's more um, regional radio stations that break my heart. I mean, I ended up on a debate with Andrew Wakefield once. Uh, Wakefield's an awful human being, but there shouldn't have ever been a debate. I shouldn't have been on the same platform as him. No. But the radio, I was younger and I wouldn't do it now, but the, the station basically told me, well, he's going on. You can go on if you want to debate him or otherwise he won't have a counter. And I remember being, this is really a horrible choice to put me in because I don't think he should be on the show at all. <laughs> you just donned your red cape and, and went on the radio. It was, it was everything. A man who's that skilled at lying is, is, is always going. And then it becomes a case of, of someone who's, who's trying to use rhetoric to scare people. He's been doing it for 20 years. He's very good at it. Mm -hmm. um, again, it comes out to platforming. And it's a really complicated question. That I don't have an easy answer for But everyone needs to be more aware of it. Yeah. You're more aware that, you know what, that person, there's a big question mark over their reliability rather than just go your credentials. That's great. I mean, I have credentials, but I could totally go and talk nonsense about something. There's no guarantee that I hope I don't. Yeah. I hope I never would. But that credentials in, them, in themselves are not enough to stop you, you know, going down a rabbit hole or being a charlatan. So that's important as well. Yeah, definitely. So it's simply a case of read the irrational ape and do the critical thinking yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is there is a checklist. I mean, I mean, I, I do stick it in the book if you don't. There is checklists. I, I always advise um, what I, I guess is now called information hygiene. Right before we accept accounts, we should kind of treat them like uh, like information is potentially infectious that it could do harm to us, or we could spread it to someone else and it could do harm to them. And the same way at the moment with lockdowns, if we don't go hugging random people that we don't know or whatever, information same instead of embracing it and just accepting it or sharing it without checking it and things like that, it's sometimes a good idea to just go, I'm going to be agnostic about this initially. And then I'm going to ask a few questions. And the question I ask is, that's interesting. Um, what's your source? Or that's interesting. You know, that why do you think that is true? And if mm. they can, if the person who's sharing it can then show you where they got it from and it's reliable or they can show you why it actually stacks up and explain it. That's great. If they can't, I'd remain skeptical about it. I'd be like, mm, I'm not going to accept that, but you do, you do you. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't share it until I checked it. <laughs> yeah. But most of these claims, if you think about it, they're big and scary. They're, they're the most um, successful predictor of whether something is shared online. It's whether it provokes outrage, disgust, or fear. There you go. Um, so if someone says, Bill Gates is killing you all, that's scary. That's frightening. That is far more uh, reasonable than Bill Gates' middle-aged philanthropist. I mean, which, is, which headline is going to get shared more? But we share things. We can't just shrug our shoulders and go, eh, it's not you know, what you're going to do. We can. We have control over that. And one of the things we can go is, yeah, I'm not going to share that. Or I'm not even going to engage with that because... Yeah. You know, until you can prove to me any of those claims or show me where they came from, for example, and people, it's very easy to do um, to check this. I mean, it sounds like hard work, but it's not always. For example, if someone shares a claim about vaccines, if it comes from the WHO and they link back to the WHO site, that's far more reliable than a meme shared on your racist uncle's Facebook page. Makes I think, you know, we have to, there's, there's a hierarchy of evidence and, and yeah. we can kind of have to go through it that way as well. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's kind of like using the same, there's a, a method of like debunking your thoughts, your like negative thoughts, your anxious thoughts, your depressive thoughts. It's just been like, right, first question, is that true? And if you're really set yes. on that, that is true, you're going to be like, yes, that is true. And then next layer, how do you absolutely know that that's true? Okay, I'm going to have to do some research. 
and for, there's another four but they're more for like your emotions but like just is it true yes or no if you think yes how do you know it if you think no how do you know it like yeah yeah but that's but that's actually brilliant because that's a great example of what's called a, Socrat- a socratic dialogue mm. where you just it's questions and answers before you accept anything and i think the fact that that is to do with emotions is really important too because actually most of our beliefs we might think that they're facts and figures we are really emotive creatures right we are and we know from all our our psychological stuff and everything else but even when it comes down to how we interpret the world around us and what we accept as a fact or not it's not facts and information aren't impartial they're always uh, triggering some response in us so asking those questions i mean when i when you come across say the same thing you'd ask yourself what you've described there that the thing for for checking whether your mental state is is an accurate reflection of how you're feeling if this information makes me feel a certain way is it designed to that's one thing i would say mm. like and we know that for example if information makes you feel really scared or angry or realize that it might be engineered to do that and that, and, and that's often what conspiracy theories are but even when you have your own belief and i think it's really important I think that there is no shame in changing your mind. There is only shame in refusing to change your mind when the evidence really demands that you should. So what I would say to people is, you know, be proud of changing your mind, but also question yourself as much as you question anyone else kind of go, why am, why do I believe that? Mm, Should I believe that? And feel, and feel absolutely fine in changing it. If the information goes, eh, it's okay to if more of us could do that without a stigma and without feeling there's a stigma uh, a lot less of us would fall down rabbit holes yeah. and i think if people realize they have the freedom the same way when you question yourself and your default beliefs um, it can be very liberating yeah. and i really i want people to feel liberated not enslaved by this this is not a series of diktats and you, you've read the book obviously yeah i i it's all about um Empowering. using this stuff to to make yeah well to protect yourself and also to make everyone's life a bit happier and i think that's quite liberating i think when you realize that the world isn't quite um as rigid as maybe we we impose on ourselves or uh, there's there's a little bit of nuance as well in the world and that that's beautiful too yeah yeah definitely well i I was very quick to recommend it to like one of my friends and i think i've seen she shared it a couple of times siobhan and she loves the fact that you narrate it as well um (laughs) Because I like she's such a logical thinker. I was like, right, you are gonna love this book. <laughs> oh, that, that's <laughs> um, great. Um, so uh, hopefully that, that it'll spread the message. She's got a larger platform than I, so it will hopefully get into a lot of lot of minds and, and make people's lives a lot better. But um, just before we wrap things up, I don't, and I don't know how long this this story takes, but I have heard you speak about this on a podcast before, and I know I, <laughs> I think you probably know what is coming up. But I just I'd love to hear about the gay frogs. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah um i i, I should do a screen share because it, it is a classic you should, you should you, you, if i don't know if you can put this clip in but it's brilliant so this goes back to an alex jones thing and um yeah i, I alex jones is, is a guy he's he's fascinating because i'm 90 percent sure he's 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 putting it on and then mm. i get i'm and then part of me is like no you couldn't put on that level of, of extreme anger. If you ever watch Alex Jones in video clips, he's banging everything. But yeah. in one of these, um, in one of his Infowars things, he talks about a gay bomb. And a gay bomb is a long standing, like a lot of conspiracy theories, it has a root in like a grain of truth that's been misunderstood. And it was true that the US military did look 
at weapons in the 60s that would, you know, they could create some, make enemy soldiers attracted to each other, right? And then the reason they didn't pursue it is it was a really dumb idea. So mm-hmm. they put that in the bin. Um, but Alex Jones com- comes across some of these old declassified documents and, and goes on this rant. And then he, um, he, he elaborates as only Alex Jones can. And at one stage he turns to the camera and he screams, I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the freaking frogs gay. <laughs> and then he starts banging the desk and it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. So um, it's, 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 I had it as my ringtone for a while when uh, he called me. Um, and it, his anger levels are just off the chart. Like he's just, it's, it's performative, but it's very much, but it's interesting again, just to, just to see, um, I, I thought no one that would never take on. There is a subset of conspiracy theorists who, really do believe that so yeah. that is it's that is interesting to our knowledge there is no chemicals being put in the water to turn the frogs gay just to reassure any that's any uh, listeners or viewers yeah and even if there gay. was that's okay hey, hey, those, gay, those frogs <laughs> can live the life they choose and yeah. it's not your place to judge them right? yeah exactly um that's brilliant thank you so much um for coming on where where is your favorite place for people to find you outside of obviously the book uh, yeah, um, uh, as long as you're not sending me too much abuse, most yeah, places. Yeah, no, um, not your address. <laughs> you'll, you'll get me. Yeah, not my address, not anymore. Made that mistake once. <laughs> um, you'll find me on Instagram at David underscore Robert underscore Grimes. You'll find me at Twitter at, at DRG1985. And you'll find me at my website, which I really need to update at www.davidrobertgrimes.com. Um, I'm easy enough to find, I hope. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, I'll, I'll put links to all of them in the description. But thank you so much for coming on. That was an enlightening. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Conversation. And, and thanks for. Um, if if you need anything else from me, if you need like random information, if I've said something dumb that needs to be re-recorded, let me know. I, but, know. Um, I think you you were you were definitely not dumb in this conversation. You've done all right. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm, the hangover has definitely kicked in a bit because I said, "Oh, I'll have I have one whiskey last night," and then I had more than one whiskey more than one <laughs> and then I said, but i'm getting too old like i'm 36 now so it's just i'm just i'm i'm obviously i can't handle I'll, like it was only two or three whiskeys over a whole night and i still feel like death warmed up so yeah and you know you it's only gonna get worse tomorrow because it's the two-day thing yeah it, it is i'm i'm done i'm just i have to just give up <laughs> yeah. i have to go teetotal it's the only not, option for it not even the scientists are immune but thank you so so much an for absolute coming on, pleasure David. listen i'll have a great day and sure i'll talk to you at another stage and right? yeah take it easy bye bye well, there you go. A brilliant conversation with a brilliant mind. And thank you so much for listening. I hope you found that conversation helpful um, in confusing times, really, to be alive and to have an Instagram account, I would say. So that is it in terms of that episode. You're all absolute legends. Thank you so much for listening. Of course, as always, if you need therapy, if you want therapy or if you're interested in it, it's betterhelp.com forward slash need to read and that'll get you 10% off of your first month. If you want to make the investment in yourself, then you know where to go. If you need anything else from me, always feel free to pop any questions over via email or give us a follow on Instagram at a need to read with the number two and not the word. But thank you so much once again. Love you. Bye.